0: Welcome to the Everyday Story Podcast. My name is Ben Armstrong.
1: And I'm Jack Clem.
0: This is our fourth episode in our Esther series of Read Well. Um, we have covered a lot of material, and today we're going to endeavor uh, to finish out the content of Esther, chapters 7 through 10. Um, that's a lot to cover. And so uh, if you if this is your first episode joining us in our Esther series, we encourage you to go back and listen to the introduction and then the first two parts, um, because there's really a lot of content there. We don't have time to summarize all of our episodes. Um, but one one way we could maybe just briefly review is talking about how we've kind of approached the story of Esther. There are a lot of different ways um, of, kind of breaking up the story and looking at it. Um, we've taken a uh, kind of look at it through um, the language of holy war, uh, of, of covenant between God's people and God's enemies. But there are a lot of other ways of looking at the story. Um, Dr. Clem, what are some of those different ways that we can, we can kind of look at the story and think about the story of Esther as it's presented?
1: Yes. Well, you know, we could take a look at the book of Esther. I mean, it's such a wonderful story. It's rich in so many ways. And every time I read it, I feel like I'm seeing things that I didn't see before. But, you know, as you think about this story, you really could approach it from a couple of different angles, thematic perspectives, perhaps we could say. For example, there are some who view what we find in Esther from the theme or from the perspective of a royal court episode, kind of similar to Moses in Egypt or Joseph in uh, Potiphar's house or Daniel in Babylon and then eventually in Persia. So that's, you know, we would see Esther as a Jew in the court of one of these uh, significant royal personalities from Persia, King Ahasuerus or Xerxes. Uh, The other, and we've talked a little bit about this, as you uh, might remember, and those of you who followed along with us, this feasting motif. And there's really about 10 feasts that structure the book of Esther And so feasting is definitely a prominent theme in the book that needs to be dealt with. The first four feasts would relate to the Persian kingdom. The fifth through seventh feast would favor or feature Haman, and perhaps we could say relate to the Amalekites. And then feasts eight to ten would be more exclusively devoted to, uh, hosted by Esther that would relate to Uh, the Jewish people. So that would be another way. And then, as you mentioned, Ben, you know, we're kind of locked in or thinking a lot about this covenant motif, and we're thinking in terms of kingdom and covenant and war and just uh, how God is uh, standing behind his people or maintaining his loyalty to his people. But then, of course, you know, a very simple approach is to just follow the narrative plot, a narrative focus that is um, zoned in on the plot line that's taking a look at the characters that that's paying attention to the irony, the reversals, all the different literary techniques that you might expect in uh, in Hebrew narrative.
0: That's kind of how we've practically structured some of these episodes to give give you guys you know some of the, the handles for how to think through the different chapters of Esther and the different parts of the story. We've kind of combined, maybe those last two approaches a little bit, and how we mm-hmm. um, are approaching these episodes. Um, But you know there, you know we've talked about some of the challenging issues with this book, and I mean I think um, (laughs) this section in particular uh, will highlight some of those: the the silence of God, the lack of a narrator's interpretation of the events that are given. um, You know, the the life of Israel in exile, and all of the complexities and ambiguities and. Uh, questionableness of life in exile. Um, What are some of the other struggles that we see, the challenging issues that will come to bear in uh, chapter seven through 10?
1: Well, even the politics of the kingdom, you know, just Mm -hmm. how, and, uh, you know, I'm I'm anxious to hear your insights on chapter seven with just the way in which the queen and the king and the second in command interface with each other and how, um, you know, Queen Esther sort of navigates that whole thing. And and uh, looking forward to hearing your thoughts on that. But you know the, the the nature of Israelite life in exile is somewhat questionable. Or you know, is the nation becoming overly paganized? Is it um, maintaining its its commitment to Yahweh and to covenant? Is there you know are there is there a remnant of belief within the exile? And of course, I think we could go to other portions of the canon of scripture that uh, would be parallel or give us insights into. Um, you know, Babylonian or Persian life, and we can see uh, definitely a yes to that. But uh, this, this, as you mentioned, this lack of determinancy—you uh, know, this, this—the um, fact that we don't really have the narrator telling us what's going on leaves us uh, just wondering a lot of times. You know, what what's happening? And then, of course, the, uh, the there's a theology and an application of the book that grows out of this. You know, how should we view Esther or Mordecai? You know, are they characters to model? Are they are, you know, should we look to them in any way, shape, or form for some living well kind of um, thinking? And, and uh, you know, then what about God? His silence here leaves us wondering, is he, is he a reliable person of trust? Um, is providence enough for us to embrace? as we live through our own daily life. So we wanna save some of the answers to those questions for the last episode, yeah. where we'll kind of wrestle with that. So that, so let's consider this a little bit of a tease yeah. about uh, <laughs> get you time. thinking, and then um, hopefully we'll uh, be able to have some good uh, insights for you in our last episode on the book of Esther.
0: Hmm. So as we jump into Esther seven, some of the observations that we immediately, you know, at least come to my mind, um, is, you know, Esther 7 is actually going to be when Esther makes her request. And so the first banquet, she kind of defers that question and that, uh, you know, that that task to the next banquet. And so this is the second banquet. And so the scene opens up with Haman being hurried uh, from honoring Mordecai uh, to the second banquet. And, and just, I mean, I think we need to take a minute and just appreciate uh, the dangerous and the dangerous and delicate task that Esther is attempting to achieve. I mean, Mm -hmm. she's trying to incite the king against his closest advisor Mm -hmm. without making the king look guilty or uh, without making the king angry. And we know from the past that the king is known for getting angry. And so this is, I mean, this is a really dangerous, delicate part of the story. You know, we tend to think that the riskiest part of Esther's uh, life was when she went in before the king. But in some ways, I mean, the risk and danger is not over as we begin chapter seven. Um, Mm -hmm. And so the king at the second banquet says, hey, like, what's your petition? What's your request? What's your wish? And so Esther starts out and she says, um, my petition or my wish is for my life and my request is my people. And so I think the first thing we notice is the reversal with Esther from the beginning of the story in that she acts in solidarity with her identity and with her people. Mm -hmm. Um, At the beginning of the story, she uh, does not disclose that she's a Jew. It doesn't seem like she, um is acting in solidarity with Judaism, with uh, you know her people. And now she just comes right out and identifies my life and my people, that's my mm-hmm. request. And in her in her uh, petition, what's really interesting to me is she ends up quoting the exact words of Haman's Edict. She says, mm-hmm. like, my people are about to be killed, they're about to be annihilated. They're about to be destroyed. That's a direct quote from the edict that went out from Haman's pen to all of the nation back in chapter three. And so I think it's really interesting how uh, Esther is just so shrewd and how she mm-hmm. wraps her favor up. She doesn't even mention Haman's name until the king, after hearing all this, I mean, and she, she even wraps it in words that uh, seem to indicate that she's looking out for the king's best interest, right? She says, um, you know, if this was just about us becoming slaves, I wouldn't have even said anything because it's going to bring damage to the king. But my life is at stake. My people's lives are at stake. And so the king is starting to get in range, says, who, who, who dares to, uh, you know, threaten you? Tell me who this is. Like, tell me where is this coming from? And now Esther finally gets to name uh, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. And, mm-hmm. and now Haman is terrified before the king and the queen. All of a sudden he's thinking, maybe it's not a good idea that I was this excited to come to this banquet, right? Uh, he's, he's just terrified. And I think the next thing that we see is the king's wrath just propels him to go out to the garden. He's like, all right, I need to blow off some steam. I need to think about this. And I mean, it's really just a fun thing to think about, like what's the king thinking about here? I mean, he hears my, my queen's life is at risk uh, because of a law that's written that's irreversible how am i gonna get out of this what am i gonna really, do
1: yeah he's really in a uh, in a pickle there isn't he in terms of like who is he going to side with is he going to side with haman who is his second in command and with whom he wrote you know or gave consent to author this decree or is he going to side with with um with Esther, his his queen. So the drama is really intense at this moment. And your observation that, uh, you know, sometimes we think that it's settled and calmed down in the earlier chapter, chapter six, is really not the case, isn't that, isn't that true?
0: Yeah, and, and it just, I mean, all the while, while the king is venting his, you know, trying to think through how he's gonna do this in the garden. Um, meanwhile, Haman knows, the king doesn't make any choices on his own. There's a rich history of that in the story of Esther. The king is always persuaded by influential Mm -hmm. people around him. And so Haman's thinking this through and what does he do? He says, there's only one person that has a shot at sparing my life and that's Esther. So I'm gonna plea for Esther to save my life. And the only problem is he violates harem protocol. And this is what's really interesting in the story to me. I think we need to observe this, is that harem protocol dictated that no man could ever be left alone Mm -hmm. with a member of the king's harem. Mm -hmm. More to that, uh, a a man was never supposed to be within seven steps of a member of the king's harem. And so Haman is alone with the queen. And it's really ironic, right? Like where else is he supposed to go? He shouldn't follow the king out to the garden to walk around that like the king got up to leave to get away from Haman. Mm -hmm. And if Haman flees, he looks really guilty. right? And so his only option is to stay, mm-hmm. violating harem protocol. And then when he falls on the couch before Esther, uh, he's violating that other piece of harem protocol. And it just so happens that as the king comes back from thinking through how he's gonna deal with this, it just so happens that Haman is falling on the couch, violating harem protocol at that moment. And the king says, well, are you gonna assault the queen in my presence in my very house? Mm-hmm. And then at that very moment, my favorite minor character of this entire <laughs> story, Harbona, uh-huh. the eunuch, speaks up and says, oh, by the way, <laughs> the gallows that Haman had built for Mordecai, who, by the way, saved the king's life, are finished. Mm-hmm. And the king says, that's it. done. Yeah, Hang Haman was... on his ga- on his own gallows. And the story ends, Haman is hanged, and the wrath of the king is abated. Mm-hmm. And I just think, wow! Like that—that that chapter uh, moves so quickly through that mm-hmm. action. I mean, it is action-packed. It's tense. Mm-hmm. It's tight. It's all right there, and it, it's like, wow, that was so fast. Yes. Here, Haman ends up starting at the beginning of the chapter, rushed to the party, and at the end, he's dead. Mm-hmm. Like, wow, that happened so so quickly, and there's so much irony here in this chapter. That's just dripping with irony. Uh, And it's just such an incredible action packed chapter. Um, But that's kind of chapter seven, I think. And so, you know, the immediate threat of Haman is over, but you go to chapter eight and the threat really isn't over. And so, how does chapter eight kind of take us through the action um, of like, okay, this man's dead, but this law is irreversible and it's very much alive and impending?
1: Right. Yeah. So when we come to chapter eight, well, actually, before we leave seven, and I, I just love the way you summarize that for us to capture sort of the drama of what's going on, the intensity of the moment, and sometimes that, you know, as we think back to our methodology, and you know, we're kind of in this um, focus or this part of our of our uh, podcast where we're trying to encourage a reading well. Well, you know, I think. You made a couple of uh, observations that co- grow out of reading well. and you know just simply paying attention to the wording of uh, what Esther is saying and how it compares with the wording that we saw. That's very similar. It's being repeated. It's being leveraged here now to uh, Esther's advantage in chapter from chapter three to chapter seven. So that I think is is really helpful and insightful. And then, of course, uh, just seeing sort of the the irony, as you mentioned, I think the the most uh, blatant irony is is as you mentioned, you know, Haman being brought in and Haman being taken out, you know, brought in thinking he's he's coming to another banquet that will in some way uh, serve his own self interest, maybe work out uh, the death of Mordecai, but then ultimately, ironically, going to his own death. I did want to mention one thought that uh, uh, I was noting is that when. Uh, Haman is terrified before the king and the queen, this is another kind of reading well. It takes us back to the episode of uh, Saul with the Amalekites. And when Saul was disobedient to the Lord, you have that same word being used in 1 Samuel 16, 14, mm-hmm. where just before his judgment and before the Lord mm-hmm. comes down on him with a word of condemnation for his disobedience, you know, he's, he's terrified uh, and he's being tormented by the, by the Lord, um, a harmful spirit from the Lord was tormenting him. So it's almost mm. like that, that terminology there is terminology that uh, you see before judgment falls. Mm. So, now we, interesting. so now we come to eight, and here is, like you said, Haman is dead. You feel like we can relax a little bit. Um, and what you see is reward. Esther is given his house. Mm. Uh, Morde- Mordecai is, interestingly, given the king's signet ring. So, you know, he's worn the royal robes back in six when he was mm-hmm. paraded around the city by Haman. Now he's being given Haman's signet ring. So, it, you know, kind of positioning him in a place of authority. Mm-hmm. And now together, Haman, or excuse me, together, uh, Mordecai and Esther are set over the house of Haman. Mm-hmm. And now Esther falls at the feet of the king in order to plead with him to revoke the deadly plot that Haman orchestrated. And, of course, it's interesting the way that Haman, again, is identified. Hmm. Haman, the Agagite, and then Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And um, so it's kind of interesting that since the king cannot revoke Haman's order, he does then give Esther and Mordecai permission to reverse the order and to allow the Jews the opportunity to defend themselves against their attackers. And so that's an important piece that will be played out actually in chapter 9. But the scribes here are summoned, just like the scribes were summoned back in chapter 3, verse 12. You know, Haman summons the king's scribes, and they write out the decree, and just as you had mentioned, and how um, uh, Esther leveraged that in her uh, initial appeal in chapter 7, and they wrote out all that Mordecai commanded, and then the order was published throughout the kingdom. And what's interesting about this order that's a little bit different from chapter 3 is that the Jews are elevated to uh, a position of um, you know, equality within the kingdom. So they're, you know, they are receiving the order, and they are now in a position where they can defend themselves. So it's published throughout the kingdom. Uh, and the chapter ends with Mordecai leaving the king's presence in royal robes, and the city is rejoicing and feasting. And finally, we see this fear of falling—the fear of the Jews falling on many people, which is causing these Jew, or these these people, these enemies, or these people in the cities, to declare themselves Jews. So that's and, a question for you, as our yeah. as
0: our. Old Testament expert, <laughs> um, that that stuck out to me too. And I know, like, some of the commentators wrestle with, like, are these people actually turning to Judaism, or is this kind of like the Gibeonite deception, where it's like, mm-hmm. hey, let's let's make ourselves look like something. It's in our best interest if we, uh, you know, start to act like the Jews a little bit and call ourselves Jews, so we won't have to be involved in this like national civil war that's coming. Mm-hmm. Um, so, do you think? You know, is it more of that, or is it like an actual conversion to Judaism?
1: Well, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about the Gibeonite uh, situation, and, it, you know, that might be a, a parallel sort of narrative scene to investigate to see whether or not there might be some merit in um, in comparing the two, and, you know, maybe each narrative account serving and helping the other to better understand it. But uh, from what we understand, the fear of the Jews that causes a conversion here to Judaism, uh, this is the only use of this phrase in the Old Testament. So so we don't, you know, when we make the comparison, if we did so with the Gibeonites or any other, it would be more conceptually than it would be linguistically or based upon terminology. So the meaning is really unclear. But what catches me in this is, again, I sort of like echo back where it takes me back to um, the situations that I read in the book of Joshua, where... You know, the fear of a conqueror is now falling upon the people. So like when you read through the book of Joshua and as the people were being, as the Israelites were coming into the land, there was this fear of the Israelites that was falling upon the people of the land and, uh, you know, kind of intimidating them. Um, you know, in in, in that sense, um, you know, sort of weakening their resolve to fight. But here it's, it's more, you know, the outcome is like, well, I want to identify with you all. You know, I want to be part of the team. I want to be in the tribe. And, um, you know, I want to be on the positive side of uh, the outcome of what's going to unfold in chapter nine. And, uh, you know, it may even echo into uh, what Zeresh said to Haman, you know, in his back and forth with his family and with her between the banquets. And Zeresh says, well, you know, if Mordecai's a Jew, you're not going to be able to stand against him. And uh, so I think, you know, I, I, I like how that sort of ties that, that, that phraseology or those ideas tie into, you know, covenant, holy war, and sort of the Lord's, you know, coming into an area to taking over that area. Uh, in a victorious kind of a way.
0: Hmm. So then chapter nine opens up with battle, with warfare, um, this anticipated battle account. Um, And to me, what's really interesting is the irony, right? So here Haman, this whole thing starts because he wants... his people to gain mastery over the Jews to extinguish them and the exact opposite happens the text says that the Jews gain mastery over their enemies and there's a sense of completeness because not only is Haman killed but they take all of his sons and -hmm. they are killed as well Yes, Um, and so there's a there's like a full extinguishing of that line that goes all the way back to first Samuel 15 Uh, no longer will there be a descendant Uh, Mm -hmm. from King Agag, they're all dead now. Mm -hmm. And so that's really interesting. I think that's really interesting. Um, Is it important? So there's a lot of people that are killed the first day, 500, and then the second day, 300, and then 75,000 people the second day. Um, Is it important that they don't take any of the plunder? The text makes a point that the Jews don't touch the plunder. Is that important, and and what should that kind of communicate to us? Uh, in, in you know, that situation. Yeah.
1: Well, I think um, it, it's important for a, a couple of reasons. It, it's You see that um, the fact that they are not taking the plunder um, seems to indicate that they're acting in keeping with holy war. In other words, the Jews don't touch the plunder. Uh, they're not using, you know, in other words, this is truly holy war because uh, they're not using this war to... Enrich themselves, but and usually in holy war, what happened was that uh, the plunder was was under a ban. Harem is the word, and then was used, you know, dedicated to the Lord, taken into the, uh, you know, in, into the, the uh, tabernacle temple there. So I, I think it's important to see that connection with the plunder that the Jews didn't. There's some there's restraint here in the way that they're going about. Their battle with those that uh, hate them, that those uh, that want to destroy them, and then also I think it just serves to clarify that the nature of the battle was a defensive battle. You know, they're defending themselves against their attackers who had come after them. So they're, you know, the idea is to preserve lo- their life, to defend against those that are attacking them, but not to enrich themselves as a result of uh, taking plunder that belonged. Uh, to the Persians or their enemies.
0: Mm. The other thing I think is really interesting in this chapter is how Esther is described and how she acts. Um, from the beginning of the story, you know, she's taking orders from Mordecai, relying really heavily on his wisdom. And then you see this transition where, you know when she puts on the royal robes and goes in before the king and then has these banquets, and she's kind of organizing how to, to request, uh, you know, this this big request from the king to now, you know, she's the one going in before the king asking for a second day of fighting. She's the one sending out the decree. She's the one telling Mordecai what to do. Like she becomes this um, powerful queen in a way that's contrasted even with like Vashti and how she's portrayed. Um, you know, sh- she's kind of the second in command. Right. And... It's really interesting how she kind of takes on this role uh, of protecting her people and, and kind of actively, proactively doing that instead right. of reacting to, to other people and what they want.
1: Yeah, that, that, um, that request for a second day of killing is a request that uh, has caused interpreters to ponder that pretty, pretty carefully, pretty extensively. Because when you think about it, the original decree allowed for one day of defensive fighting, right? So, and really that was uh, all that Haman was, was asking for in his decree. In other words, you know, we'll have one day and they will, uh, the enemies of the Jews will come and and um, kill them. And so, you know, the original decree just allowed for that one day of defensive fighting. But, you know, the king then asked Esther, you know, is there anything else you wish, you 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 desire? It's kind of like, how you were mentioning uh, that uh, same sort of phraseology that you were highlighting in chapter seven. And uh, so as a result of her asking for a second day, uh, commentators have really judged her harshly. You know, is this an overkill? Is she acting more pagan-like? Is this a vindictive kind of a move on her part? And, uh, you know, the text doesn't really provide any justification for it or judgment of it. And so we're left to... Uh, you know, wonder, well, what is this saying about the character of Esther at this point? But, uh, you know, we don't really see any attempt to vindicate her or to rehabilitate her at this point. And, um, you know, it it seems the best is to take note of the ambiguity in the text and observe that the Bible does not rehabilitate or vindicate the darker side of God's chosen leaders. And you see that... uh, you know, with David and his adultery, and, you know, you see it with, uh, with Saul and, and sort of the liberties that he took during his time. But uh, the text certainly affirms that no one can handle power without yielding to its darker side, as uh, Job's makes observation of in her commentary. So it's, uh, it's an interesting moment that uh, really does cause us to ponder um, how do we judge Esther? How do we read her? And how do we characterize her?
0: Which we'll get into more in our last episode, um, like how do we think about these characters? Should we emulate them? Should we condemn them? Uh, you know, what do we do with that? So we'll, uh, you know, there's a little bit of a tease for next episode. Yes. Um, can you talk us through uh, the the feast of, of Purim and the significance of that and how the story ends with a focus on establishing that that festival. Uh, what is that all about, and and what's the story talk yeah. about in those
1: well, verses? Well, you know, as you see there, the fi- in the final verses of chapter nine. So when we talk about the feast of Purim, uh, there's really a lot of attention that's given to it, from about nine twenty all the way through the remainder of the chapter, chapter nine, and then we can kind of uh, tie into that um, the um, the final verses, the three final verses of chapter ten. But, um, you know, here we have this feast, which is really dedicated to celebrating the um, uh, the victory that the Jews, the reversal, the victory, the deliverance of uh, this decree to exterminate them while they're in exile, and uh, it's really a two-day celebration. And, um, you know, going back to that question about whether or not uh, there's any justification for what uh, Esther did in requesting a second day, we might say, well, it's, it's kind of... Um, Included or it's um, brought into the celebration uh, of Purim as a two-day festival. But uh, as you can see from just reading the text, it's a, it's a time where it, there's a, there's a lot of food, there's a lot of feasting, there's a lot of celebration. There is attention that is is given to the poor, and there's just this reminder of um, this you know wonderful deliverance that the Jews experienced during. Their uh, their time in captivity, and it's rather interesting. It's still celebrated. It's it's added to the five feasts that uh, were commanded by Moses in the Pentateuch. Um, you know, if you just Google it and look up uh, the Feast of Purim 2021 or whatever year it might be, but um, this year 2021, it's celebrated February 25 and 26. And uh, so it's it's a time when um, the Jewish people give attention to recall this story and reflect on it. I, I thought Jobs did a very interesting um, job in her commentary, where she um, was reflecting on how the Holocaust uh, has you know really made it difficult uh, for many Jews to you know continue to see the joy that's associated with Purim. We'll we'll talk about that a little bit more in our final episode, but. Uh, uh you know, there we see the outcome being a little bit different than what we read about here for uh, the Jews during their period of exile.
0: Hmm. I think what you know this feast is just so ironic because you know all through the story, you get you get the sense that Haman uh, isn't a very happy man and he, he thinks that once he can get rid of Mordecai and the Jews, maybe he'll be able to sit down and feast and actually enjoy it. And it's just ironic that now, uh, the Jews end up establishing a feast where they remember the day when Haman cast lots, the purr, uh, to determine the, the, the date for the Jews' annihilation. And it's actually his own annihilation. And so now the Jews feast every year uh, to remember. I mean, it's just so so mm-hmm. ironic and it's yes, such a it satisfying is. ending. And I think, you know, as we think about like final thoughts for this section of the story, I think it is a fitting ending. Yes. Like you you end with a sense of closure. Like there aren't threads that are started at the beginning of the story that aren't closed. Um, Haman is gone, his edict is reversed. Uh, Israel's people are safe at the end. Um, like it's just, it's a like, ah, okay. Like mm-hmm. that That was a good story and mm-hmm. it ended well. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that was kind of the sense that I get after reading it. Yeah. No,
1: that's a good uh, word. I, I like that word, you know, that sense or that idea and everything that's loaded into it of closure. Like you, you, when you come to the end of the reading of Esther, you know, there is closure with regards to the story, the plot, but we still are left with questions. <laughs> you know, even though there's closure, we still have questions about like, oh man, how should we interpret, you know, different actions? But I think the one thing that as we just wrap up on uh, this particular episode of our study of the book of Esther, I think the other thing in addition to closure, you know, there's that sense of relief, there's that sense of deliverance. I think um, maybe close on the heels of that idea is this idea of reflecting on God's faithful commitment to his people. So even though the the story um, leaves us wondering about determinancy or the story doesn't include the omniscient narrator telling us, you know, why Esther is making certain choices or why Mordecai is doing what he's doing or why Haman is doing what he's doing. I mean, we, we get some insight, but not enough to really uh, answer all of the, um, the, uh, the mysteries that we find and uncover. But we come away, without a doubt, with a sense of, like, God was there, even though he wasn't mentioned, even though uh, we don't see a lot of explanation we see obviously he's there, he's behind the scenes, he's committed to his people, and there's enough covenant language to lead us to that conclusion in the story of the book of Esther that we feel like that's a legitimate conclusion to make, and that's a a way we can read this well and think about how that impacts our living from our vantage point in the act of the story, the overall story that we happen to be living in at this particular moment.
0: Mm, I think that's excellent. And I mean, we we wrestled, you know, as we were preparing for this episode, like how much do we talk about now? Because there's just so much, there's so much irony that we're gonna talk about mm-hmm. next episode, there's, you know, gonna be so many more, or so much more, you know, different things we're gonna talk about next time that we wanna hold off now, because um, I think it'll be really helpful next episode. But we really do end up with that sense of relief that, wow, like, even though God's name is not mentioned, and even though he doesn't act miraculously, quote-unquote, in this story, um, God keeps his promise that his people will not be destroyed. Mm-hmm. And he does that through, like, extraordinary, ordinary events. Yes. And and a lot of, like, it just so happened. And, mm-hmm. and I think, like, at the end of that, you're, you come away reading the end of the story, and you're like, okay, like, God... God knows what he's doing and he's got the story written and there's there's nothing, not even the most powerful empire in the world, not the most powerful man of that empire, not an irreversible law. Uh, nothing can stop that. Mm-hmm. And I, I just think like that, like, wow, okay, that's a good story. Yeah. Um, and next time we're going to get into all of the other questions that we have and how do we live in light of it and how do we live well and all of those things. Mm-hmm. But right now it's like, ah, oh, that, that's, That's right. a fitting ending. Yeah,
1: just rest in that, that uh, truth, that reality that comes out of the story. And we'll look forward to spending time in our next episode, uh, trying to sort out some of the complexities, as Ben has mentioned, and, and hopefully um, pointing a direction for you that uh, will uh, give good evidence of how we can live well based upon this story of Esther.
0: It's a perfect ending. Amen. Cool.
1: We'll look forward to, to uh, our next episode. So stay tuned and, and uh, invite as many of your friends as possible to uh, tune into our podcast and to enjoy the read and enjoy sort of the growth that uh, comes from learning how to read well that God's uh, stories.
0: Original music for this podcast was created by John Horton. Her graphics were designed by Virginia Stroud and this episode was mixed and mastered by yours truly. Thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll see you next time here on the Everyday Story Podcast.